Hi there. Welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. We're so happy that you tuned in. Please join us today as we continue our series through the book of Matthew. Hey, thanks for joining us online as we go through a series called Asking for a Friend. Have you ever had one of those questions where you know you're supposed to know the answer, but you are so embarrassed to ask it, and then you kind of just pose it as, hey, I'm asking for a friend. Can anybody help me out with the answer to this question? Through this series, we will learn that Jesus loves to hear us asking him questions, and he loves to answer those back. If you are new or a regular, Thank you so much for logging in. We appreciate all of your um, love and support and generosity through all of these series that we uh, present for you guys. If this is your first time, please log on to www.branchlife.church backslash connect. And in there, you will be able to fill out a connection card. We would love to give you a new Matthew journal as a free gift for, logging in and joining us. If you would like more information about our church, you can also go to the website and we you can find out some events that what's going on and some more um, series that we have already done and just ways to help encourage you. So thanks for jumping in and we hope you enjoy this new series. going to go into Matthew chapter 19. Believe it or not, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 20 as we ask this extremely important question found in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. The question is, what must I do to be saved? So let's dive right in. If you have your Matthew journals, you're going to want to be on page 104. Again, these journals are available to anyone. If you don't yet have one downstairs, if you're listening online, just fill out your online connection card. Let us know that you'd like one and we'll send one out to you. Uh, But Matthew chapter 19, it starts with this. And behold, in verse 16, behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what still will I lack? And Jesus said to him, well, if you will be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, 
and then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pause there before we go any further today. This is what's known as the story of the rich young ruler, the kid that had all kinds of possessions, came up to Jesus, and he asked him a question, what must I do to be saved? In other words, he had started hearing rumors about eternal life coming from the Messiah. He started hearing about the possibility of not only a mansion in this life, but a mansion for all eternity. He started hearing about streets of gold. He started hearing about new heaven and new earth. And he wanted to get in on that eternal life thing. And this rich young ruler had had the... uh, experience in life that some of you have had where if you want something you just go buy it right if if i want a new ipad i'm going to go buy the new ipad if i want a new car i'm going to go buy the new car even with inflation it didn't matter to this rich young ruler and so he bringing his experience to this opportunity for eternal life finds the teacher finds the guy and says all right how much is this going to cost me I've got all kinds of money in my back pocket, and I want to know what I've got to do, how much I've got to pay in order to have this full life, this eternal life, this promise of a future life ahead. And then Jesus answers. And for a lot of us, we may get a little confused by the answer because it sounds like he answers it in two ways. Here's, Here's the summary of what Jesus says in this passage to the rich young ruler. First, he says the requirement is going to be perfection. I'm going to require you to be perfect. And then, he said, the cost is going to be everything. The requirement of perfection and the cost of everything is how you get eternal life? All right, so now the rich young ruler, his, his wheels are turning. And so are you. You're like, wait a minute. Salvation is going to be, mean I have to be perfect and it's going to cost me everything? This, the other group that was there were the disciples. And the disciples, when the rich young ruler asked the question, what must I do to be saved? They're they're whipping out the Romans road. They're getting their, their, their wordless bracelet. They're starting on black and they're going from red to white to yellow to green, right? And they're getting ready to tell them about the gospel and, and the Messiah is coming and you can confess your sins. And, 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 but then Jesus answers and all the disciples are like, wait, what? And, and Jesus immediately says to the rich young ruler, listen, well, first you got to obey all the law. How many of you right now, if I did a pop quiz, you could tell me all Ten Commandments? Anybody? You can't even tell me the Ten Commandments, let alone meet and, and obey all the Ten Commandments. Jesus launches into a list of five of the Ten Commandments. In the second half of the Ten Commandments, let me give you a little theology lesson on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are simply a summary of the entire law first five commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's all love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second half of the Ten Commandments are all about your vertical relationship with other people. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. So then he says, honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. uh, uh, Don't lie and don't covet your neighbor's possessions that's the list that jesus gives to this rich guy don't murder rich guy's like all right never killed anybody don't commit adultery all right good haven't cheated on my wife yet don't lie 
I probably haven't done that either. Just love your neighbor as yourself. All right, check, 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 check. All done. Now, this rich young ruler passage is directly connected to the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, it's going to bounce back through the main themes of the Sermon on the Mount. When we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, 5, 6, uh, back at the beginning of our Matthew study, we called it the good life. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was teaching people how to live the good life. Not only how to have life more abundant now, but to have full life for all of eternity. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, right? But I say to you, if you hate your brother, you are guilty of murder. Then he said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. You're like, I'm not, I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not cheating on my girlfriend. I'm not doing that kind of stuff. But I say to you, if you even think about it, if you even look at someone and go, woo, hoo, 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 you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount raised the bar so high for holy living that it's an impossible bar for any of us to reach. Now, this is a practical one-on-one conversation where a guy comes up and says, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, the requirement is perfection. Only perfect people get saved. Only perfect people are able to be in the presence of God. God cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, someone who has sin in their heart cannot enter into the gates of heaven. It is not possible. You have to be perfect. Let me remind you a couple of the laws, and the rich young ruler's like, I got this. Now, some of you understand that you're not perfect already, right? It's Valentine's Day coming up, and you realize that you've got some stuff that you've got to make up with your spouse. So you're going to go all in with Valentine's Day because you have not been the perfect wife. You have not been the perfect husband. You are here going, perfection, not possible for me. I've already blown it. Others of you think that you're already perfect. And, and you're coming into Valentine's Day thinking, boy, is my wife hit the jackpot with me, right? Like, woohoo! what other presents does she need than my presents, right? Like this one, I've, she's got it made in the shade. If that's you, you're like the rich ruler. You think you got this. So then Jesus even takes it to another level. And he says to the rich young ruler, the cost is going to then be everything. You think you got this? Now I want you to take all your stuff and I want you to give it away. And that's where the rich young ruler hung his head and went away sad. You see, here's the problem with the, with the requirement and the cost. Religious people have a problem with the requirement. Religious people have a problem with the requirement of perfection. Why? Because religious people believe that they can somehow attain this perfection. And so religious people will constantly be asking the question, what must I do to be saved? How many prayers do I have to pray? How many Hail Marys are in it for me? How much money do I have to give? How many times do I have to go to church? Must I be baptized in order to be saved? Is there penance that I have to pray? Is there someone that's got to cover me or pray on my behalf? What must I do to be saved? And religious people, your problem is you've got to constantly try to be perfect. And then when you're not perfect, you have to somehow make up for it. You've got to confess. You've got to to earn it back. You've got to show that you're really, really sorry and you're never, ever going to do it again. Now, rich people, they have a problem with the cost. 
Because the more that you have, the more that you have to lose. And if you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. And rich people have, have accumulated stuff. And they're self-sufficient and they've worked for it and they've gotten it and it's become precious and it's their treasure and it's something that they found and they, they own, they possess, they love, they cherish. And just to turn around and give all that stuff away? For rich people and for religious people, salvation is hard. And Jesus is going to say in this moment, it's impossible. The disciples represent religious people. The rich young ruler represents rich people in this moment. Now, the first conversation, the first group of people we want to talk about this morning real quickly is religious people. You see, there's a big difference between following a religion and having a relationship with Jesus. Whether you identify as a Christian, whether you identify as someone who follows the Jewish religion, an Eastern religion, if you're a, a part of uh, the Muslim religion, the Jehovah's Witness religion, if you're just a part of just rationalism in some way, shape, or form, world religions have something in common. They all have a common thread, but following Jesus has a different thread. And here's the difference. World religions say that you need to do more good. You need to do more good. It's something that you have to do in order to get saved. There's something that, Now, following Jesus says it's already done. There's nothing else that you have to do in order to earn salvation. There's no other, there's no, there's no work that you can perform that could possibly make up for the requirement for the perfection or pay the cost. But yet, so many people get sucked up into the world religions of this world. Just look at some of these examples, and I'm, I'm not going to go through this entire list, but let's start off with rationalism. Like, is rationalism a religion? Yeah, it's actually one of the most popular world religions out there. And rationalism is just humans trying to figure out how to answer this question for themselves. And so they rationally apply logic, and here's how most people land on answering this question when it's left to themselves. If I do more good than bad, then of course I'm going to get led into heaven. If I do more bad than good, then I'm out. I'm gonna, I'll not be allowed into heaven. And you see this represented in all the cartoons, all the movies, when someone's standing before the pearly gates and Peter or Moses or some saint is standing there going, all right, should I let you in or not? Let me check the records. And they start looking at the records and you go, oh, you got all this good stuff. You took care of your elderly parents. You gave money to your church. You gave money to a hospital. You helped that poor person on the side of the road. Oh, on the other side, yeah, you do have a couple lies. You did cheat on your taxes. We're going to put these on these giant scales. And oh, more good than bad. Come on in. And a lot of people are hoping that they can measure more good things than bad things. And then somehow that's going to earn them more favor with God. I heard, I heard today, this, this week, the story of Mother Teresa. It was actually a Jeopardy question in the tournament of champions, the college, college champions this week. And, and that Mother Teresa double calling on life to follow God and to go serve the poor and move, I think, to India into the slums to help people. Mother Teresa was trying to in favor with God by being the most saintly person she could possibly be on this. Now, 
that's, that's rationalism. That's saying I got to do more good than bad. And then take any other of the major world religions, and I didn't want to single any out, so I just took the top ten and just gave you kind of their answers to how they answer this question. And in Catholicism, they are going to talk about faith in Jesus. That's going to come up, but they're going to add to it. And they start adding things like baptism, the sacraments, the, the Eucharist, having to have participate in confession, last rites, purgatory, and there's prayers that you've got to do, there's stuff that you've got to give, there's saints that you've got to please, and all of that's got to work together for your salvation. You've got to work out your salvation over time. Historically, Catholicism has kept building onto uh, salvation by adding works. In Judaism, you have to obey the Jewish laws and customs. You've got to be a part of the nation in order to, to have salvation that's offered to the Jewish people in Islam. In Islam, you've got to practice the five, the five pillars successfully. And even then, like giving alms and saying prayers, and even then, there's a chance you might not make it. The same thing is true for Jehovah's Witnesses uh, somewhere here up on this list. Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got to live a good life. You've got to follow the teachings of Jesus. And then, maybe then, you might be one of the 14 people that get, get accepted into, return, into heaven. There's like no way to know if you're going to be saved. In the Eastern religions, in Mormonism, in, in, in Buddhism, even atheism, who doesn't believe in higher power and afterlife, you are, determined, you are determining your own fate and happiness. Everybody says do more good. When it comes to following Jesus, the answer is only one is good. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. As, as the question gets asked, it says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said in verse 17 to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Jesus is kind of tipping his hat here. He's tipping his hat at this conversation. There is nobody on this planet who is good other than the Son of God himself. There is only one who is good. You can never do more good than bad. You have inherited sin. You've inherited brokenness. And there's nothing that you can do to fix it. In other words, what God is saying, good works can't save bad people. And your inherent problem is that you are a bad person. And I don't mean that. I'm just as bad. I'm just as broken. I'm just as sinful. And there's no amount of prayers. There's no amount amount of services, there's no amount of good deeds that I can do to overcome the badness and the brokenness and the darkness that is in my heart. You see, religious people have a problem with that because they want to work it out. Jesus' answer for salvation is simply this, trust the one that's good. You must trust the one that's good. Trust Jesus with your life. We use language like saved. And that comes up here, like, you must be born again. All of these come from Scripture, but they can have, they can carry their own meaning. I much prefer the term, I have decided to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you pray to receive Jesus uh, and decide to follow Jesus with us in the card, we ask you to mark that, mark that card that says, not have I gotten saved today, but have I decided today to follow Jesus? Because what salvation is, is admitting that you can't do it and that you have to trust Jesus for your soul's saving. You have to follow Jesus with your life. You have to be able to give him everything. If I'm trusting him for my, with my salvation, I'm going to trust him with my spouse. 
If I'm trusting him for my salvation and my eternal life, I'm going to trust him with my money. If I'm trusting him for salvation, I'm going to trust him with my kids. I'm surrendering all to Jesus. In that moment, when you realize you can't save yourself and this life is not your own, in that moment, you give everything to Jesus. You surrender all. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to live a new life. I am now deciding to trust Jesus. Have you come to that point in your life where you've realized there's nothing you can do for salvation, but you must accept him? Well, then why do we do good works? Because Jesus has saved us. We now say thank you with the works that we do. And faith without works is dead. So the rich young ruler is standing there, and we realize that the religious people have a problem with the requirement. Rich people have a problem with the cost. You know that money makes a terrible treasure? You've all seen Treasure Island, right, where the pirate's like, ah, I'm going to go out and find me treasure. And he, said, he takes all this time to go find the buried treasure, and X marks the spot, and when they open it up, they open it up, and they want to open up the treasure, and what do you want to see in all that buried treasure? You want to see gold, you want to see diamonds, you want to see rubies, you want to see cold, hard cash, and then the pirates are like, ah, this is amazing. And we have identified riches as treasures in our world and in our culture. But Jesus in this moment is saying, money makes a terrible treasure. The last thing that you want to treasure in this lifetime is money. Rich people have a terrible problem when it comes to the cost of salvation. In Matthew chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 19, let's look at verses 23 and 24. After the rich young ruler had gone away, Jesus then says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a rich person to be saved. Verse 24, again I tell you, it's easier for a camel, and this is literal, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And then they said, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. And he said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see we have left everything and we've followed you. What will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. And everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many, who, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You see, Jesus is giving this principle that he's repeating from the Sermon on the Mount, that money makes a terrible treasure. I led a camp uh, one summer for kids, a junior high camp. Junior high camps are amazing, right? And for that entire summer... For that entire week, excuse me, we played what I called the Couch Olympics. We had four teams, and each team got a couch, a blue couch, a red couch, a yellow couch, and a green couch. And they had to literally carry their couch around the camp for every game that we played. We didn't play capture the flag. We played capture the couch, right? And we, we didn't play hide-and-go-seek people. We played hide-and-go-seek couch, right? Like you had to go find the other couch and bring it back in. And, and so the couches moved all through the camp. They got wet. They got muddy. It was, it was amazing. The very last game that we played with the couch, I came out and I rolled a tire, a, a, an empty tire, like a tire swing, out into the field. And all four of the teams were there with their four couches. All week they were earning points. Their points 
their points bought them time. According to who was in first to fourth place, we started the watch. The first team that could get their couch through the tire won. Giant couch, itty-bitty tire. So, kicking, screaming, yelling, shouting, crowbars and, and sledgehammers, they demolished those couches, and piece by piece, they started throwing them through the tire. We ended up having a, a couch bonfire at the end. Of the, so that's, how we, that's how we had our, our moment in our clothes. We burned all those couches. And it took them a good 45 minutes to get this giant couch, and it ripped it apart through these small tires. That's the picture that Jesus paints of rich people trying to get to heaven. It'd be easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to go to heaven. We have to be able to come to this point where we realize that our riches must be sacrificed and we cannot use them to save ourselves. And if you're sitting here going, not my problem, I'm not rich, you are wrong. This passage is about you. Let me prove to you right now, wherever you are, that you're rich. Some point in the last 24 hours, you bathed in drinking water. You bathed in drinking water. In other words, 90% of the world looks at us and says, you're using drinking water for a shower? You're using drinking water for, do you know what I have to go through to get clean drinking water? And you are so rich that you just flush it down the toilet every day? We, in our modern, modern countries, live in an era and a time where we bathe in drinking water. We are the richest people in the richest culture ever to exist in this world. So for who is it hardest to get saved? Us. Americans in 2022, people living in the first world, we are wealthy beyond all measure. When we think we're poor, we have no idea what poverty is. One of the other things I did with teenagers for years and years and years is every other year we took trips, mission trips around the world. And kids who were raised with televisions and iPads and, and iPhones and beautiful school buildings and driving luxurious cars, we would go to third world countries like, like Haiti, like Jamaica. We go down to some places in South America or other places down over in Europe. And we start going around and, and seeing how other people actually live. You mean they don't have shoes? You mean there's no electricity in their house? You mean they go where to go to the bathroom? And to see how culturally we have been blinded to the wealth that we have when it's exposed by looking how most of the world lives today. We're loaded. And so in Matthew chapter 6, when it says to all of us, you can't serve God and money, that's a real issue for us. Because we serve money a lot, and money serves us a lot. And we live by the almighty dollar and it supplies our needs and it provides us our wants and money can so quickly become our God. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6. Let's jump back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching on this very principle. And so what do we do, those of us who have this enormous amount of wealth, how are we supposed to respond to this challenge uh, of not allowing money to master us? How are we supposed to accept the cost of giving God everything? Because, man, 
we have an enormous amount to give. In Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, it's going to teach us that we need to treasure up. Verse 19, don't lay for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust, rust break in and thieves don't steal. For where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body and so your, when your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you dark, is dark, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or he'll love the other. He will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, our founding fathers in this principle on our very currency decided to remind us about this principle that in order to be saved, you must give God everything. The cost is everything. It's all that you have. And so when you are tempted to trust in the almighty dollar, just look on our very coins. We do not trust in money. We do not trust in wealth. But in God we trust. And if you need that reminder on any given day or any given week, grab that quarter, grab that dime, grab that silver dollar, and remember that it is in God we trust. And we take this treasure and we treasure up. You see, instead of laying for yourselves in, uh, uh, treasures here on earth, instead of treasuring earthly things, we're supposed to lay for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's where our true value lies. And so when we give up something for God, when we give something to God, we are now storing for ourselves treasures in heaven. Let me, let me give you another analogy to help you understand this. In other words, you should always, flag your, always fly your Jesus flag first. Why do I bring up the imagery of flags? Well, when we are flying our flag, we are waving for everyone what's important to us. And we often will hang out a flag that, that symbolizes our country, or, or right now you're either putting the L.A. Rams flag or the Bengals flag up, or you're wearing the Eagles shirt just in protest because we totally should be there. And we wear these symbols and we fly these flags so that we can demonstrate to the world who we are following and what matters to us. And for so many people, Christianity or faith in Jesus is one of the flags you fly and it's not the first flag. But when you fly the Jesus flag first, you are then allowing every other flag that comes behind it to be following in the way of Jesus. It's to be given for Jesus. In order to get saved, you must give up every other idol. What's an idol? An idol is anything that you put before Jesus. For rich people, it's easily money. But for so many of us, our idol doesn't have to be money. God could have put in any other example in that verse. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in your marriage. You can't serve God and and your kids. You can't serve God and technology. You can't serve God and sports. You can't serve God and your job. You cannot have two masters. You can only have one. So fly your Jesus flag first. And if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's shown so many of us that our Jesus is not first. 
Maybe it's our health flag that we fly first, and that becomes so important. Maybe it's our politics flag that we fly first, and that becomes so important, and we work for that, and we're known by that, and we post that, and that becomes the thing that we preach and we teach to other people, and the Jesus flag is flying somewhere in the distant past. We've got to say no to these other idols. We're not serving these things. We're flying our Jesus flag first, and everything else follows. There was a young man that I was working with, a young adult, who had felt a call to ministry. And he was super excited about learning how to possibly step into ministry full-time or, or where to go as he was planning his, his career and getting seminary classes. And I actually gave him the opportunity to teach. And he, he taught an incredibly powerful lesson to a group of people. And at the end of the lesson, he talked about getting to the finish line and not bonking. And there was a commercial on at that time where people would run to the finish line. Instead of breaking through the tape, they would bounce off of it and fall backwards. He was saying, hey, finish strong, don't bonk. I was like, man, it's one of those lessons that I've remembered all my life. He said, don't let anything distract you from Jesus. Over the next 12 months, that young man got a new girlfriend. His new girlfriend did not care about spiritual things. She didn't want to come to church. She didn't want to be a, a part of ministry. She didn't want anything to do with the Bible. But he was so smitten by her. She was beautiful. She had a great personality. They clicked. And over that next year, that young man who had felt this call to ministry to serve Jesus with his life showed up less and less and less. He started missing once worship once or twice. He, he started getting out of his service responsibilities. And instead, he was going on a date or he was going to go visit family. And then instead of missing once or twice, he would start showing up only once or twice during the month. And you just saw this progression in, in where he was spending more and more time with her and less and less time serving Jesus. And, and all of a sudden we said, hey man, what's up? We, are you still even a part of our church? And he, he said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not going to be part of this anymore. Well, me and my girlfriend, we want to do something else. Following Jesus all together. He literally bonked. Instead of running through the finish line, he put a relationship with a person in front of his relationship with Jesus. She became an idol in his life. She became what he worshipped, not Jesus. And in order to follow Jesus, you have to give up everything and let the Jesus flag fly above it all. You see... Without Jesus, nothing else is possible. And in the, in the next sentence, when, when we hear all this and we say, I, I'm constantly putting stuff in front of Jesus. I'm constantly failing as a follower of Jesus. I don't know how I could keep the law and give Jesus everything. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, the whole point that I'm making, the reason that I'm bringing all this up is when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, said to them, with man, it's impossible. You can't meet the requirement. You can't pay the cost. But with God, all things are possible. I have to point you to a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus ends the conversation by answering this question. He gives them the impossible uh, math of grace. See, the mathematics of grace are an incredibly unlogical equation. It's this impossible math that somehow doesn't add up. It shouldn't add up, but in the end, it does. And this math of grace that Jesus shows says this. There is 
goodness that I do not have, plus a, a debt that I do not pay, plus grace to any who believe equals eternal life. That shouldn't be the equation. That shouldn't be how it works out. And to demonstrate this, he cl- and I'll close with this, here's an incredible story in Matthew chapter 20. And I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase this and we'll run through it. And it says this, Behold, a man came, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to find workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a day's work, one denarii, he sent them to the vineyard. A few hours later, on the third hour, he went out and he saw men standing idle in the marketplace. He said, you too, go to my vineyard and work, and at the end of the day, I'll give you what is right. And so they joined the other workers. Then, a few hours later, at the sixth hour, he found more people idle in the marketplace, and he gave them the same deal. At the eleventh hour, the last possible hour, he went out and found others standing, and they said, why are you here idle all day? They said, because no one's hired us. He said, go to the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And the men who he hired at the last moment, at the eleventh hour, who only worked for an hour, they received one denarii. Now those who were hired first thought they should receive more, but they all also each received one denarii. And on receiving it, they grumbled saying, the last worked only an hour, and you gave them equal pay, and I bore the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But the owner replied to one of them, friend, am I doing you wrong? Did you not agree for one denarii? Take what belongs to you and go, and I choose to give, if I choose to give the last worker what I gave you, am I not allowed to do with what I choose what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Here's the impossible mathematics of grace. At some point, every single one of us were idle in the marketplace. At some point, every single one of us were standing there, and we needed to be rescued by God. And for some of you, you met Jesus at a young age, early in life, and you have been serving him faithfully your entire lives. I come from a generation of Uh, I come from generations worth of pastors. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My grandfather's grandfather was a pastor. Pastor Scott has the same thing. We were born in church pews. We knew Jesus from a young age, and we've been following him all our lives, just like my dad did, just like my granddad did. It's been our privilege to serve him. Others of you came to know Jesus at a younger age, maybe in your teenage years. We are just incredible to have that experience here at Branch Life Church. Just a couple youth groups ago, a junior higher prayed to receive Jesus Christ as as their personal Savior. Some of you were saved as as teenagers or young teens. There's a pastor friend of mine uh, named Mark Clark, and Mark Clark came to Christ in his early 20s and his late teens, and he was that kid that was invited to a worship service, and he didn't didn't know any better, so he, he, he just wore whatever he had on and he was smoking all the way up until he got into the worship center and his hair was all kinds of different colors and he used curse words every other sentence and he met Jesus and after getting saved as a young adult he gave his life to Jesus and he decided to become a pastor and now he's pastoring one of the fastest growing churches in Canada he got saved as a, as a teenager as a young adult 
Some of you got saved later in life. You'd been standing idle longer. And, and in, in your story, you had pushed Jesus away over and over again, or you didn't understand grace, or you were following a religion, or you're trying to work it all out, and then you realized that you needed to be saved, and it happened later for you, and, and you're just getting started in your spiritual journey, and you want to give God the time that you have left. And yet there are others who get saved at the very last possible moment. Mark Clark's dad came to Christ right before he passed away. And, and, and Mark was sharing with him for years and years what it meant to be saved. And he didn't believe, he didn't believe, he didn't believe. That's for you, that's not for me. But when he was, when he was on his deathbed, he gave him the gospel one more time. And, and that man choose, chose in that moment before he died to accept Jesus as personal savior. It happened with Jesus on the cross. There was a, a criminal who was hanging next to him, and the criminal said, hey, Jesus, today, will you remember me when you go into paradise? And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't earn it. He couldn't pay the cost. But by grace, they were saved. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, salvation is offered to each and every one of us freely. And whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, whether you're a young adult, whether you're middle-aged, or whether you're at the end of your journey, you too can come to know Jesus in this moment. Will you give your life to Jesus? Will you accept the free gift of salvation knowing that for you it's impossible to be saved, but through God all things are possible? And today, if you would like to follow Jesus, today, if you would like to be born again, today, if you would like to put your faith, faith hope, and trust in Jesus, this is a simple as saying to God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the son of God. He died on the cross and rose again for me. And I want to accept the free gift of salvation. I want to give him and surrender everything to God. That's the impossible mathematics of grace. As we consider this together, let's quietly sing the song, Amazing Grace.
bow our heads, close our eyes together in these moments as we wrap up our service today. We just want to give you an opportunity to do business with God. Maybe you're here today and you say, hey, today I need to surrender all. I need to follow Jesus. In this moment, in the quietness of this, this time, would you simply pray this prayer between you and God? Say, dear God and Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to do the impossible, to save a sinner like me. I confess my sin. I believe Jesus died and rose again for me. And I want to become today a follower of Jesus. I want to accept the free gift of salvation. For those of us that have already done business with God and we know that we're saved, maybe today you've, you've let something creep up first before God. And, and it's so easy to put these things, these treasures before him and and maybe today you say, God, I, I'm sorry for worshiping that idol of money or that relationship or that cause. And God, today I want to put you first in my life. God, as you challenge us in these moments, I pray, Lord, that we would, we would follow you in your power, not ours. And God, that you would be first in our lives. In the precious name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, thanks again for diving into God's word with us. We hope it spoke to you in a special way. Don't forget to fill out your connection card before you log off. You may go to branchlife.church or you can find it in the chat area and click on the link. If this was a blessing to you, it would be a favor to us if you could pass the word along. Share online, tag a friend, or by word of mouth. Who knows how God can speak to you or to others through this series. Anytime you would like to connect with us, come right back onto our website or onto our YouTube channel, Facebook, and hopefully you can find um, ways to connect with us, more series to dive into, and just ways to help encourage you throughout your day. Thanks again. Bye.